0: Hello and welcome to an election special episode of Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guests today are Adam Getachew and Bronco Marchetich. We talked about the US election results, why the blue wave failed to materialise and how Joe Biden will govern with a Republican Senate and a Republican majority on the Supreme Court. Remember, if you would like to hear the extended version of today's interview, you can sign up as a PTO supporter on Patreon. For £3 a month, you can get access to extended versions of regular episodes, and £5 patrons also get exclusive access to episodes of PTO Extra, shorter interviews on current events. And if you're outside the UK, you can now also donate in US dollars or euros. Go to patreon.com forward slash theory other to sign up. Adam Getachew is Neubauer Family Assistant Professor of Political Science and the College at the University of Chicago. She's a political theorist with research interests in the history of political thought, theories of race and empire, and postcolonial theory. We chatted about her excellent book, World Making After Empire, The Rise and Fall of Self-Determination, in episode 47. My second guest is Bronco Marchetich. Bronco is a Jacobin staff writer and the author of Yesterday's Man, The Case Against Joe Biden. So as of 11.30pm UK time on the 4th of November, uh, we still don't know for certain who will be the next president of the United States. It looks, uh, given the way the mail-in ballots are skewing towards Biden, uh, that it's very likely that he will win the presidency at this point and the networks are now calling Michigan for the Democrats. However, the Republicans are calling for a recount in Wisconsin, which Biden looks to have won by less than one percentage point. And predictably, Donald Trump is crying foul and threatening to take the election result to the courts. But before we get into the details of the results so far, I just wanted to ask how your election nights were and to what extent your expectations uh, were confounded or or confirmed even. Um, So, Adam, if you want to go first, uh, uh, you spent the election in Chicago. So um, how was your night and what result had you been expecting?
1: Well, I think when the evening started and we turned on the television, I think around 7.30 or 8 p.m., I think we were cautiously optimistic um and uh the you know the initial counting coming out of Florida it started with the mail in ballots there in fact, and not the day of votes, so it looked surprisingly good. Ohio looked surprisingly good early in the evening too um but obviously that was very quickly uh, uh you know a false false promise and uh I spent the most of the night up watching, even though you know, I think by midnight it was very clear that we wouldn't find out any much more until the following uh, day. So I think you know, I think it wasn't that I expected a blowout. I was really hoping for something closer to a decisive victory on election day, in part to just avoid the kind of uh, legal maneuvering, um, you know, those forms of violence and intimidation and protests that might be on the horizon. Uh, clearly that didn't happen, but it's not just that that didn't happen. I think there's some very surprising uh, results uh, that really in which it seems that in some places, Biden did um, overperform in comparison to Clinton, and in some places, very surprisingly underperformed. So I think there's much, much to discuss and figure out over the next couple of days and obviously weeks and months ahead.
0: And, uh, and Branko, you're in New Zealand, and it would have been uh, the early hours of the morning when the polls closed in the US. Uh, so what did you uh, what did you wake up to?
2: Uh well I really watched uh through it. Um and then kind of went to bed and woke up about three hours later and kept watching. So uh yeah, you know, I guess that was the, the advantage of the, the time zone I'm I'm currently in. To some extent, you know, I, I didn't really think that it was going to go as smoothly as everyone else thought. I, I had been seeing some you know alarms or worrying signs with the Biden campaign and with what Trump's strategy was uh, in the months leading up. So I, I was a little more pessimistic going in anyway. Um, and perhaps, you know, uh, less charitably to myself, maybe I was just trying to uh, avoid the uh, 2016 result. That was really quite a shock. Um, but, you know, whatever the case, you know, I, I was surprised at how, off the polls were, I expected them to be off, but um, not to the degree of, say, the, the eight points between what happened in Wisconsin and what Biden was kind of tipped to to win by and, and some of these other big margins, you know, Michigan, similarly. I think that ended up being a surprise. But, uh, yeah, it was certainly, it, it was definitely anxiety-inducing. I will, I will say that, you know, because I think above everything, knowing what a second trump term would mean for our prospects of preventing uh climate catastrophe and having seen some of uh trump's attempts in, in this final year to kind of centralize the uh federal bureaucracy under him and kind of install loyalists at certain posts uh you know it could have been if he had a second term it could have been very dicey so so it's good that that has been avoided uh, at least for the time being
0: I mean, the narrative last night seemed to be that the uh, Democrats were having, you know, almost a sort of devastatingly disappointing evening. But now uh, it looks like they can still comfortably win the Electoral College, not with a sweeping landslide, of course. Biden will win the popular vote, perhaps by around five percentage points. On the other hand, the Republicans will still hold the Senate, uh, while it looks like the Democrats have lost seats there as they have in the House as well, although they will uh, hold on to Congress. Um Exactly how disappointing a night do you think this is for the the Democrats and how do you think the Biden leadership are going to uh, spin it?
1: Well, um I think probably the biggest disappointment is that this election, you know, it happened in the context where a quarter million Americans have died due largely to, you know, state neglect, uh, inability to prepare for and respond adequately to the pandemic. Uh, it happens in a context where There hasn't been an adequate economic response to the fallout of the pandemic. So all of these things, I think, you know, had these things not been the case, had this not been the context, I think it's now clear that probably Donald Trump would have won by huge margins. Um, Mm. So I think their inability to turn this moment and this narrative into a bigger win, a more decisive win for the Democrats is... I think really shocking and surprising. Um, I don't imagine that that's that's the story they'll be telling, though. I think uh, the story will be, you know, we defeated an incumbent president. That that one term mm, if one which term is presidents, difficult. which is very difficult. It's very rare, um, and I think that will be what they harp on. I think they will you know reiterate if if they in fact manage to win back all the midwest states that will be an important rhetorical point for them these this is the so-called blue wall this is the thing that had given trump the election so they I think that will be an important part of their narrative. Uh, there will be other issues that they might have a harder time explaining if it shakes out the way it looks like it is now, including uh, exit polls that show that Trump might have won higher numbers of Latino voters and even some African American voters than he did in 2016. Um, the question of the strategy for the Democrats in 2018 and now has really focused on suburban voters. So, how much they can rely on that group of people, I think will be a question. But I think that they will largely focus on a, a kind of historically unlikely victory against an incumbent president.
0: And Adam, do you, do you see this as, as a straightforward vindication of the position of left Democrats and supporters of Bernie Sanders? Or, or do you think it's more complicated than that?
1: I think it's much more complicated than, than that. Um, you know, of course, I was a big uh Bernie Sanders supporter uh in the primary but it I think I think we'll have to think a lot about so for instance one thing that's striking is um in the, in the exit polls again the exit polls this year we have to be cautious given given the ways that um so many people voted by, by mail and absentee uh so these they may not be as clarifying about what people what what were people were thinking mm. but people who thought the economy was the most important thing were likely to vote for Trump it looks like uh so it's unclear that a straightforwardly program policy around material equality and redistribution would have been sufficient. Now, at the same time, there's other signs that may suggest otherwise. So Biden lost Florida, but Florida became the, I believe, 12th uh, state, maybe the eighth state to pass a $15 minimum wage. Uh, and that, you know, that referendum got a million more voters than Biden did in, for, um for the presidency in that state. So they also so that's also a question how is it that people seem to be committed to certain kind of left democratic policy programs but yet, you know, it's people voted for that referendum but also voted for Trump. So that would suggest that perhaps a democrat who more forcefully embraced those kinds of programs might have been able to move to carry those same referenda voters into a win in Florida. But I think it's hard to say um, that, that that that,
0: in fact, would have been sufficient. Uh, And and Becca, what do you think about that?
2: I mean, I honestly saw the selection result as something of a a quiet failure. You know, some people have kind of used the word disaster, It, it will not Appear that way; it will not be spun that way, of course, because uh, ultimately Biden looks like he will prevail in the electoral college by in a very narrow, narrow way. Um, you know, massively underperforming polls. Nevada, which should have been uh, a lock for the Democrats, looks like it's going to squeak through for Biden. We can look at a whole bunch of other other similar cases. Uh, the the underperformance uh, Biden had with Latino voters and African American voters is a huge blinking red light for the future. Uh, It is astounding that Trump won a higher uh, share of those voters in this election, uh, not just given his racism and xenophobia, but the appalling conditions and his complete ineptitude at, at handling this crisis, which is, you know, this crisis is really, it's like, it's an unimaginably bad situation in the United States. And the fact that, that this is not a kind of nineteen thirty-two style landslide for Biden should really inspire some serious soul searching, and it seems like it is because uh, before you know things kind of got narrower. Democrats were were telling reporters already, you know, that this is not a good result. That this uh, that they're calling for a change in leadership. Uh, they're calling for a, a, a review of what went wrong. Um, and as well, they should. Uh, it does not make sense uh, that, the, that the party lost these crucial parts of that Obama coalition, uh, that coalition of voters that brought Obama to power. You know, and Obama is the only Democratic president in this century. He's the only one who's been, until Biden, been able to succeed. And, and what does it say that it took a crisis of this magnitude and, and a president that's this polarizing and unpopular and and off putting and that uh Biden is ultimately gonna squeak through with a narrow win. You know, and as for how they'll spin it, uh I I agree with everything Adam said. And I think um you are always seeing kind of what what they'll be saying, you know, ultimately this is a victory. And at the end of the day, Biden has won more votes in history uh than, than any candidate in history, uh, which is really the same talking point they'd use for when Clinton had lost in 2016. But I, I think anyone who looks at this as a triumph, given the the loss of down-ballot Democrats, you know, the, the loss of these Senate races that were looking good, the loss uh, of House seats, when Democrats have been expecting to actually increase the majority in the House, I think anyone who looks at this as a, as a triumph is really uh, kidding themselves. There, there's some profound uh, warning signs for the future if, if they take this strategy, I think, of, of courting conservative suburban white voters and taking their base for granted
1: yeah i mean one just one indication of this is that you know there's millions of dollars spent on republicans for biden republicans against trump uh but actually partisan vote share increased for trump it looks like from 90 percent in 2016 to 93 percent um this year
0: Going back to the point you made about Florida, Adam, and, and the, the fact of Biden losing the state, but the $15 minimum wage being being passed, do you think it's possible that not only is Biden see, seen as a sort of implausible candidate to be uh, supporting working class concerns, but that also Donald Trump is, is frankly more plausible and that perhaps on the left, we tend to fail to see how well he is actually able to uh, speak to people in a, in, a, in a certain way?
1: i mean i i think that's right that's clearly trump captures uh, something about not I me mean, prime maybe primarily working class uh voters i think also men uh it's very striking in the latino black uh vote count there's a very huge gender difference so I think the black women's vote went from four percent uh to eight percent this time it looks like and and black men or vote vote share was about 18% um, this time and there's a l- larger of course I can't remember the exact numbers now f- uh, f- that have come out for Latino men and women but uh, there's this I think there is this kind of w- what w- what we might call machismo or bravado that s- seems very uh, appealing to a set of voters uh, and I think we have under probably, likely be underestimated the role of those kinds of appeals. I mean, Florida is, of course, a very complicated space. I think lots of there's been lots of conversation today and also in the lead up to the election about the category of Latino and all the varieties of people that that category covers. Right. Um, most importantly, of course, uh, Cuban voters in, in Florida have consistently been Republicans. That state has also seen an increase of of Venezuelan uh, refugees uh, also tend to be more conservative, anti-socialist, but probably more important. I mean, those things have always been true. I think the most important thing, as Bronco was saying, is, uh, you know, in places like Miami, they have this other base that's constituted by a growing Puerto Rican population, a large Haitian population. And it's the, you know, the there was a kind of low voter turnout among members of the base. Uh, so that seems as an equally important part of the story, I think.
2: Yeah. And, uh, you know, that underperformance of Latinos, the, the, it was replicated in other parts of the country like Texas. There were several majority Latino counties in Texas that uh, Clinton had won by huge margins. Uh, one, she had won by about 60 points and Biden ended up winning it by five. Uh, another one, I think she had won by about thirty points. He ended up losing it by five or so. Again, this result is very much contrary to I think what a lot of people expected. And you know, I don't want to lean too much into what you might call "quote unquote" woke bashing because uh, there's a lot of that right now. But I, I think it is true that a lot of liberals and and even people on the left have assumed that talking in some of the the this language of inclusivity and and you know using some of these very particular terms that are familiar to people, you know, particularly well-educated people uh, are sort of some sort of key to communicating with uh, voters of color. But I think this election has really been a repudiation of that. I mean, a lot of the candidates that kind of did this stuff didn't really do that well in the end, uh, like Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris, the, the people that did well uh, are Biden. Uh, they were Sanders. Um, and of course, as we see, I mean, Trump's total rejection of the stuff, not just in not using it, but in actually being hostile to it, um, was, I don't know, it was the reason they attracted certain people from these demographics, but certainly it was not enough to turn them off him. And I think people on the left, whether it's liberals or further left, we really have to look at this and, and figure out a new way to communicate with people that, you know, it, it's, it doesn't necessarily mean that we avoid that language completely, But we have to understand that it's not enough that we have to really talk to people's needs on a more fundamental level, rather than sort of just expecting that we can unlock some magical secret to to appealing to them by, by using specific phrases and words.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the other thing, especially around the Latino vote, is I think there was a sense by the Biden campaign and more generally by Democrats that the anti-immigrant rhetoric of trump would be sufficient to um, you know to keep the latino voters in the in the democratic party and i think you see quite a range of views around immigration especially the question of illegal immigration or undocumented immigration even among you know uh, immigrants especially second and third generation immigrants i mean you know, a majority of ICE officers are Latino. Uh, so I think there is a kind of sense in which this is true also of the, the black vote that the kind of racism of of Trump was all that needed to be said to these voters and that and that it, even that didn't need to be said to them, in fact, that uh, it could speak for itself. I also think. I mean, it's it, this is true. I felt also with the 2016 election. It's hard to know what Biden stood for. You know, mm, uh, I yeah. mean, he the words and rhetoric he used are dignity and you know something else like it.
0: <laughs> so malarkey. It's... I seem to remember hearing that <laughs> word. <You> no <know>,
1: malarkey. <laughs> that's right. Uh, it, so in that sense, it's it's really striking that I think the 2016. And this 2020 campaign are very similar kinds of campaigns, ones that thought, you know, the brazenness of Trump were sufficient and all that needed to be said was some kind of bland statement about unity, propriety and that the real work was to be chasing, you know, suburban voters uh, in a, a variety of places. And I mean, it didn't work in 2016. And in, the, in this year with the worst crisis we have faced in, in a century, it barely worked, it looks like. So I, I, I mean, I hope there will be some serious rethinking.
2: Well, and on that point, you know, there was uh, I think a really revealing moment. It, it sort of showed us how little The Democratic Party and this kind of surrounding college industries understand the voters that they're trying to appeal to where four or five days before voting, the Biden campaign kind of put out this release that they said was their way to activate the Latino vote to get Latino voters out and passionate for Biden. And they promised um, to track down the, uh, on day one when when they're inaugurated, to track down the families of the, the kids who have been separated from them which of course is essential and and the bare minimum of what should be done to make up for the the crimes of the Trump administration. But um, it was very revealing that they, A, believed that this was a policy that only Latino voters cared about and not voters in general, any voters who care about basic decency and human rights, but also that this was the policy that Latinos most cared about more than any other. and. What's really surprising about this is that during the Democratic primary, Bernie Sanders had really dominated with Latino voters. They were a core part of his base, the exact group of voters that underperformed for Biden. And he had a Latino outreach director, Chuck Roker, who, you know, was always on TV talking about uh, when Sanders was starting to to get these wins and, and do well among Latinos, explaining what it was that was... Uh, attracting Latino voters to him, uh, to Sanders' message, and stressing that you can't just go to Latino neighborhoods and and say immigration, immigration, immigration. Of course, immigration is important, but you know Latino voters are as, as complex and, and 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 varied as any other population, and they care about more things than just immigration. They care about things like healthcare. They care about things like, you know, for instance, drug policy, higher wages. Uh, you know, these bread and butter issues that when you really look at it, unite a whole broad swath of voters beyond just Latinos. Um, and you know, I, I would hope that the party would, uh, reach out to him and, and maybe some of the other people that were in the Sanders campaign and try and learn from them if they actually want to stop Trump from continuing to, to, to poach these voters or, or, you know, any other right-wing populist that comes along. I, I hope so. You know, I sadly, I'm, I'm not super optimistic that they will learn this lesson.
0: On the question of, of Donald Trump's racism and, and how to, to make sense of this apparent imp- improvement in the numbers of black and, and Latino voters for him this time around, I mean, w- one thing I, I saw suggested was that there was there's perhaps been a, a quite conscious effort to play ethnic minorities off against each other. And uh, I suppose the thought I had about that was that it's not obvious that there needs to be that level of sophistication here and that it's, it's more a question, I think perhaps you were alluding to this, Adam, that Trump's racist uh, rhetoric, it lands differently with different people. For instance, um, there will be, uh, you know, perhaps a a small minority of Latino people who just, you know, conceive of themselves uh, as white, for instance, and who will not be put off by those messages and may even uh, be attracted by them. Uh, I I don't know what you think about that.
1: Well, I think one of the things that's really interesting, actually, about Trump's 2020 campaign versus his 2016 campaign is that he really dialed back the uh, the anti-immigrant rhetoric. That wasn't Mm. the most, the wall has disappeared from our political vocabulary (laughs) or his political vocabulary uh, since 2016. I mean... I think the, the probably the most recent, and I think we'll have to think a lot about it, is the, the summer uprisings and the return of a discourse of law and order. On the one hand, there's been very little writing or thinking about how other racial minorities, including uh, Latinos relate to the question of black lives matter and to uh the uprisings of the summer uh that's one two it does seem like although in places like minneapolis and minnesota more generally which were of course the kind of center of the uprisings biden has done very well but a a city like kenosha he's actually underperformed in comparison to, to hillary clinton so how the question of policing uh law and order place out among different um, racial minorities and uh, the, the population at large i think remains to be seen i mean it does seem though that there has been a number of again on the referenda front a lot of rollbacks of various war on drug policies uh felon enfranchisement uh legalization of marijuana has won in a number of states so I've I I ha- don't quite know what to make of that, but I think again we see um perhaps a way in which certain anxieties about law and order, stability, etc., do play well rhetorically, even as we see kind of uh, movement around po- policies and policy preferences on uh, law and order matters.
2: Yeah, it may well be that uh, the conception of law and order has changed from the nineties, you know, the heyday of. of- that tough and crime message, and really, when, when Biden was kind of uh, doing doing the worst stuff he was doing in his career, um, I'm not sure if if drugs, uh, especially drugs like marijuana, are seen as this kind of uh, gateway to uh, chaos and crime and, and violence, as they were. And you know, of course, but because now we we have a much better the public has a much better understanding and, and knowledge of this stuff um but i mean I, I think again it it kind of shows that uh the biden campaign really ended up winning in spite of itself because biden uh did not embrace marijuana legalization i think it's a it's a misguided attempt to kind of keep a uh the moderate vote or, or sort of hang on to to these imagined republicans that that uh it believed that it was targeting um and ultimately it this suggests, I think, that he could have safely gone a lot bolder, and and you know, similar to the the fifteen dollars minimum wage uh, result in Florida, clearly, uh, you know, you can be culturally conservative, you can be a Republican voter, and still be won over by appeals to, um, to 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 those bread and butter issues, to to you know, economically populist positions that might get tied as socialism by Republicans, but, you know, what is isn't, and, and I think there's a lesson there, again, not, not one that Democrats or establishment Democrats are necessarily going to take away, but I think certainly any other person on the left who is, is trying to uh, get into electoral politics on the Democratic ballot line, um, you know, that's something that, that they should uh, pay attention to and learn from.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the other thing is Biden really boxed himself in around the uprisings and and the question of law and order. You know, there was I'd never imagined a context in which he would come out in a more vocal support of, of kind of the more radical parts of the movement for black lives. but. On the question of police and policing, he sounded very not that different from Trump. So again if you were a young black voter uh, it's not and of course there's also his own history with the law and order debates of the 90s there's uh, Kamala Harris's history as a prosecutor so it's it was hard also if you were a kind of more progressive voter of color young person to see in in Biden a kind of a reason to vote for him, if those were your kind of questions, then it looks like youth turnout is just at where it was in 2016.
2: Yeah, Biden's response famously to uh, one of the most recent police matters of of an African-American man was uh, to condemn looting um, and rioting. Um, And I think it'll be interesting to see what happens if and when he's inaugurated and becomes president, because The police killings of of young black men and and a whole host of others are not going to stop just because Trump is out of office. Of course, this first flared up into a movement uh, under Obama, and it's going to continue under Biden, uh, sadly. Uh, Nothing's been done to really stop it. And then the question becomes, if we do get uh, protests on a similar scale, uh, perhaps we won't see anything as big as as what we saw this summer, but if we see protests... um, at least rivaling or or approaching uh, what we saw, does Biden take a heavy hand to this? Does he, in an attempt to secure this promise of normality that he has given his um, mostly conservative and and older and wider voting base, does he step in and try and uh, stop it by force in a similar way that Obama did, or does he do something different? Um, And I think that will uh, end up being a real challenge for him. You know, and Biden through his whole career the the chief lesson he has always taken away is to um to sort of lean right on these issues and and even though he's softened up a little bit uh, as he's as he's gotten older um he's definitely as, as he, you said adam he's still very much uh you know he, he's not that much different from trump so uh and we'll see what that does to his presidency if that is the choice he ends up making
0: on his, I mean, it seems kind of bizarre that I can ask this question, really, but which of his policies do you think is, is the most well identified by, by the electorate in the United States? W- which policy is seen as the Joe Biden policy? Uh, <laughs> what well, if you want to take know, this one perhaps, first? Perhaps you don't need to answer. <laughs>
2: oh, yeah. What? Well, you know, I, I was going to say the public option, but then at the same time, he and the Democrats have been kind of quietly moonwalking away from this uh, for the last little while. Uh, so I honestly don't know. I mean, I guess he's talked about strengthening the Affordable Care Act, protecting and strengthening it. I don't know what that means. I don't really know what exactly <laughs> they, they plan to do to strengthen it, but I, that, would, that would be my guess.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, I think they also do things that seem so excessive. So, f- for instance, when they were coming up with the party platform, they made a show of voting down Medicare for all, which you're just like, I mean, it's a popular proposal just you don't have to you, you're not going to put it in your party platform okay we get it but you don't have to make it make it a you know performance of telling us you actually don't support healthcare. Hmm. um but i agree i mean i think everything had like there was of course also the college free college uh for for some <laughs> the means tested program around free college uh but I think I think this is exactly the problem. It's not. It's not the case, of course, that Trump has policies either, really, uh, except the slogan of "Make America Great Again." And um, so it's not that there. It was really a question that the other side did. But it seems like now the Democrats have twice tried a, a version of a kind of empty. Uh, open kind of uh, mo- mantra uh, framework for themselves. And it hasn't worked. Uh, so they might have to actually stand for something, you know. And I think it's also connected to their real ambivalence about their coalition. They, I think they very much decided that they can't win unless they win over suburban voters. And they may be right about that. And I think they also have a very kind of antiquated, perhaps, vision of the suburban voter. If you look at suburbs in most metropolitan cities, they're increasingly diverse, they're getting younger, et cetera. So they might have a a different vision of who's constituted by the category of the suburbs generally, but they've decided that they can't do it without them. And they've also then decided that the only way to win the mythical suburban voter is by being as mute as possible on any kind of left-sounding policy.
0: You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you would like to hear the extended version of today's interview and of other PTO shows, then please consider becoming a supporter. You can get access to extended versions of PTO episodes from £3 a month, and if you're outside the UK, you can also now support the show in US dollars or euros. Go to patreon.com forward slash to sign up. Thanks for listening.